Welcome to Life Hurts, God Heals. I'm one of your hosts, Kurt Flagel. I'm your other host, Kim Ward. And we are excited to have you join us on this particular episode because we get to talk about something that I think everybody struggles with. I know I do. And that is discontent. As uh, the, the lyrics to a song that probably a lot of people know, an old, old song. I can't get no satisfaction, though I try, though I try and I try. But yeah, like, that's the truth, isn't it? We all try and try to be satisfied, to try to, we chase after desires, we chase after contentment, and somehow it seems like we never quite get there. So we're going to be talking about tonight, like, how, what's the key to that? What, what is it that really brings us satisfaction and contentment? Is pursuing contentment for contentment's sake and focusing on trying to be satisfied the way to go? Or is that actually a, uh, a telling sign that there's deeper roots that we're not dealing with in our life? Things that we're really needing to focus on that we're not. Mm-hmm. For me, this, is, this has come up a lot uh, in the last week through a, a series of things, but one one of the things is I have friends who are really struggling right now with, they have dreams, and they have um, a desire to have a child, and that hasn't happened, and they've gone through medical procedures, they've gone through all kinds of things, and yeah, it, it's not happening for them, and they're really struggling right now. One in the marriage is is struggling more than the other mm-hmm. and has gone into like deep depression over it. And like sadness, anger, like just doesn't really can't find any any kind of what I would say, any kind of satisfaction, any kind of contentment because this one desire is not being fulfilled. So that for me is is really in the on the forefront of my mind and it makes me think about the things what you know that I feel are unfulfilled in my life and am I so focused on those things that I'm missing I'm I'm missing out right I'm missing out on on what God is trying to give me because I'm so I'm holding on to that thing so much that's really the question that has popped into my mind. It was, what am I holding on to so tightly that I don't have or I'm chasing after it and grasping after it to hold to it so tightly that, that I'm missing out? I'm missing out on other things. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's definitely, I think, something. I mean, we all struggle with it, right? The idea, if I only had this. Or if I only had that, if this one thing was fixed in my life, then I could deal with everything else. Or everything else would fall into place. Or life would, you know, be that much closer to perfect. Or what are the three magic words we say, if I just had this, uh, I'd be happy. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's the magic bullet, that one thing. If I had it, I'd be happy. Yeah, it's it's definitely, I know God's been on me about that one a little bit, you know, because 
you know, as a kid, I escaped into fantasy, you know, make-believe stories, pretend farms, <laughs> you know, as a way of, of coping with everything. You know, my, my home life wasn't great. You know, I, I, you know, there was enough pain there that I wanted to do what I could to escape from it in the best way I could think of at the time, you know, as a little kid was, well, I can make up these fantasy worlds, you know, maybe if I pray hard enough, I'll wake up the next day and that will be the reality instead of what I'm dealing with. Mm. You know, so I built farms and I stocked them with trees and plants and gardens and I had all the horses picked out or the dogs or the cats. It really just depended on uh, which particular book I had checked out from the library you know, which thing I focused on more, <laughs> you know, and, you know, eventually I grew up and I'm like, well, that's not real. Obviously I know as I got older, that's not, <laughs> I'm not just going to have everything just right. And suddenly that's going to be the one that flips everything. And, you know, that's suddenly going to become my reality. But I did catch myself still, you know, using that as an escape when things would get rough. You know, it, it was easy to slip back into, oh, I'll just go on Craigslist, or I'll just go on here, and, you know, I'll set myself a limit. Okay, 40 horses. Which horses would I choose? <laughs> you know, spend a couple hours browsing through uh, equinenow.com. Thank you very much. Um, you know, and I caught myself, and God started going, well, why are you doing it? Like, what, what's go- what do you think is really going on here? Yeah, and for me, it was just, it was like, this was how I learned to escape from pain. And from, you know, a little bit of feeling overwhelmed. Mm. That, you know, things were too much and I, you know, like, it was easier to deal with fantasy than it was to deal with the reality of, ooh, I'm going to have to actually do actions and make choices and those are going to impact my life. It was easier to go, look, I can control this. You know, I could control my fantasy worlds. Fantasy worlds are easy. Right. Yeah. You can in that respect, them. you can control them. Everything goes the way you want, unless you're sleeping, in which case those fantasy worlds rarely go the way you want. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it really was. He's like, do you really think that these things are in the end? Do you want me or do you want these things? Mm. You know, I was like, oh, I'm like, God, I want you first teach me how what it means to stay awake you know so that that's been the last few weeks it's been an interesting struggle <laughs> to stay awake and not slip back into those patterns you know to to be content because that really is is it right it's we want all these other things you know it, it'd be easy for me to go oh, i'd have the you know the perfect job or or the you know perfect whatever you know and be easier but Oddly enough, you know, the stories we love most when it comes to books aren't the ones that have everything perfect. That'd be a really cruddy book. (laughs) It'd be a really boring book, you know. And I'm coming more and more, as much as it's not comfortable to realize, you know, we're in this epic adventure. And that means that not everything is going to be easy or perfect or simple, because it's the most complex characters, you know, that we fall in love with the most when it comes to reading. And if our lives are stories that other people are reading, then a boring one is, is simply not sh- reflecting God's glory in a way that brings other people in. Hmm. 
Well, I, what I hear as you're talking is this idea of, of really is control. Yeah. That the question is, who are we allowing to be in control of our future and our past? Mm. And even and how we answer those questions really shows us where we are in the present, mm. right? Because it's, it's really a question of who gets to have the say over what's best for us. Mm. Because in those, like what you were just sharing was when things in, in life were not matching up to what your expectations were, what you decided, right? Yeah. This shouldn't be the way it is, right? And there are times like where you're, we are right. It shouldn't be the way it is, right? Yeah. But it still is. And in that moment, that's the choice. Do we deal with things the way they are? Or do we retreat into our own, into our own selves, into our own fantasies about how we wish they would be? That right there, it, it says something about what choice we make. Says something about who God is mm-hmm. to to us. It really comes down to. It always comes down to identity, who we believe God is. If we believe God is really is who he says he is, he's good, he's mm-hmm. faithful, he is peace, he is joy, he is patience and kindness and love, then that means that even in those moments, even in those moments where things aren't the way they should be, he is, he is there and in the midst of that, and he has given, he has placed gifts in the midst of the the trials and the pain for us to discover i i really i really come back always to this idea of the easter egg hunt mm. right when you talk about you know easter like and you th- and you think about easter egg hunts like what comes to mind is is for me is joy because the the parents are hiding eggs from the kids and and if people came from another country where they didn't know our culture, right? They didn't know the things we did. And they saw parents taking all these, these, you know, these treats and these little prizes mm-hmm. and putting them in eggs and hiding them all over the place. They would be like, those are mean parents. Yeah. How mean? They're hiding all of these good things from their kids. But what's, like, what's the intention of the parents like what is their whole attitude in doing that you're hiding them for them i I mean i literally just got to experience this this easter and the last because i have friends that have five kids (laughs) you know which means that's an awful lot of eggs to hide that is a lot of eggs that was a lot of eggs we started running out of hiding places but you know part of the joy was i was it, it, it really is it's a joy like i was sitting there going i'm like Ooh, how sneaky can I be? Because we've got a three-year-old, but then we've also got a thirteen-year-old. You know, so yeah, and everything some of them, in between, and every oh yeah, and everything in between. So you know, some of them you have to hide in really easy spots, and others you get to be a little sneaky and a little creative and hide them in the most weirdest, random place. But there really is that joy of they're gonna have so much fun finding these. 
Mm. You know, like, this is going to be awesome. Like, they're going to have a blast. And, yeah, I'll help them if they need them. There was, like, one or two that I might have gone a little overboard on my hiding skills. Um, but even in that, like, kind of going, like, hotter, cold, hot, cold, hot, hot, hot. Boiling hot, you know. Like <laughs> giving them clues. Giving them clues, even in that, because God's good enough to do that for us too. Yeah. When we need it, you know. Like, but there's so much joy. Yeah, exactly. The attitude and the intention of the parents is joy. Yeah. That they're looking forward to their kids, looking for these eggs, um, and these, and the kids uh, totally understand. That this is the way it's meant to be. That it is their parents, the, the attitude and the intention of their parents is for them. Mm-hmm. And that's, that these, these gifts, these little treasures have been hidden in the, in the, in the wilderness of the yard, right? In the, in the, crazy, <laughs> in the craziness of, the na- of nature, right? Yeah. And the, the parents have hid all these things because they want the kids to find them. They want the kids to look for them. Because the parents want to enjoy their kids in this whole endeavor. And the kids get that. And so they have an attitude of joy because they know their parents have an attitude of joy and are doing this to enjoy them. Yeah. Enjoying the process. And that is what God calls us to do. In our daily life is like there is, there are even when things like the, the most traumatic things that could happen to us and this is not this is not downplaying any anything that you went through or I went through or anyone else goes through there are terrible things there's abuse there's trauma there's death there's loss in our lives and yet we have these promises in scripture like Romans 8 28 that a lot of people quote you know that says God uses all things for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Or another translation, he works everything for the good. And that idea of working everything, even the, the trauma for our good, that, that hints at that there's gifts. That God's intention is for us to find these gifts that he's hidden in the midst of all of the tragedies. That we live in a broken world and things are, are bad at times terribly bad but yeah god is good and his goodness is greater than the bad of our circumstances god's character is greater than our circumstances so even when things are the darkest they could be god's goodness is greater still that's what the scriptures promise us Mm -hmm. it's just whether we believe that or not I mean, there's even scripture talking about, there's a scripture to me that really connects me to God's character and to that Easter egg hunt, which is Proverbs, I believe it's 25.2 that says that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is the glory of kings to seek it out. To seek it out. God hides things in the midst of, of our worst circumstances, gifts for us to find treasures in the darkness. And it is for us, it is our, to our glory. If, we're, if we really believe his identity as the king of the universe 
and what he says about us is that we're his children, then we have, then it is our glory as his children, we're royalty. In Proverbs 25, 2, then like in the Old Testament was for the kings of Israel, right? Mm -hmm. But now we understand what God has said for all of us is that he is royalty. He's the king of the universe and we're his beloved children. And that means that it is our glory. He hide, it is his glory to hide things, and it is our glory to seek it out, to seek them out. And this is the choice we make. It all comes down to this control issue, who gets to be in control of our lives and our decision-making process, all comes down to identity. What, what do we believe about God, really? And what do we believe about ourselves? Do we believe that he's our dad who's hidden things for us, that every day is Easter, and every day is an Easter egg hunt, and every day he's got gifts hidden for us because he enjoys us looking for them, even in the biggest struggles? Do we really believe that that's true of him? That's going to reflect on what we believe about ourselves, that we, whether or not we're really his children and that he enjoys us. And that's going to affect our attitude and the actions we take. And so when we start moving back into, if I only had this, and we grasp for, we hold on to something and say, if I only had this, mm. I, I'd be happy. That's taking our eyes off of God and putting them on an object of desire, rather than him being the object of our desire. And yet how easy it feels like for us to slip back into that. Oh, yeah. Or... or like you said, do it for years and not even realize that that's what we're doing, that we get caught in these habits. I mean, I did it. In the book, as I'm, I'm writing right now, I keep rewriting the opening chapter over and over again. I keep going, no matter what else I'm writing, the first chapter is like the foundational thing yeah. that really sets the tone for the rest of the book. and And I keep going back and rewriting it. And one of the things that that it's become clear that I have to tell the story of how God healed me of the, the, the greatest wound of my life. And, you know, this is not to denigrate my father or anything yeah. like that. We all have wounds from our parents. That aren't, you know, the best intentions of our parents, um, they're not the Heavenly Father, and yeah. so they're finite and flawed, just like I am with my kids. And my kids definitely have wounds. Though I have the best intentions for my kids, I am finite and flawed. So this is not to, you know, this is not to lambast my father. This is not to make him the bad guy or, or anything like that. But there's, I have, I've, I carried a, a huge wound for years. And that was uh, this memory that I carried, this wound that I carried was the I was 17, and, and let's get it straight, I disobeyed my father. Yeah. I was grounded um, for a day. It was the last day of summer. Mm. Uh, it was Memorial, it was, excuse me, Labor Day. It was Labor Day. And school started, so it was a Monday, school started the next day. Mm. And that was always the case where I grew up in Connecticut. And I was grounded because I didn't help when we were on, we just got back from vacation and I did not help clean up. Ooh. So I got grounded for the day and that was the case. 
uh, I should have stayed in the yard. And um, unfortunately, the temptation was so great because my cousin Seth, who was my best friend growing up, was staying in my grandfather's house, and he lived right in front of us. And so he was out hanging out with friends of ours, and they were out, like, basically standing out in the street um, between my grandfather's house and the neighbors. And and I, I don't know where I was, but I saw him. So I went out there, and I I just saw my friends, and I went to my friends and was talking with them, and, the, and I just stepped out onto the street. Well, you know, I'm a talker, and I'm going, and I'm going. And my cousin is saying, Kurt, Kurt. Kurt, Kurt, and I'm like, what? And he's like, points, and here comes my dad. He'd walked through our yard into my grandfather's yard, and now was like 20 yards away in my grandfather's driveway with a look of intense fury on his face. And I knew I was, I was toast. And I was, I was, at that moment, I just froze. I, I panicked. I saw the look on his face, and I know I was in trouble. And he just walked up, didn't say a word to my cousin, to my friends, nothing, and just grabbed me by the hair and then dragged me behind him, like, so that I was bent over, and he just pulled me all the way through my grandfather's yard, through my yard, into the house. And, you know, and just, he's always been stronger than me to this day. He's always been bigger than me, yeah. and no matter I was hoping to get taller than him, that didn't happen. Yeah. Um, and he just—he was—I've always been thin. He picked me up, and you know, seventeen, and I just—I weighed nothing, you know. And he picked me up and was shaking me. He's like, "You will never defy me like that again." I think my dad is an Enneagram three. Mm. I think that the point of the anger came from the fact that he uh, that I did it in front of other people, that I disobeyed him and defied him in front Oof. of other people, and that it shattered the picture of you know our family. We yeah. kept, kept things in the family. I think that's my it's kind of my thought anyway, but yeah. I don't know for sure. We, he and I have not had that discussion. <laughs> I sent him the book. I don't think he's read it yet. Yeah. Anyway, so that memory. I mean, that's. That was just, he's never done anything like that before or since. That moment was just, it was just sheer anger for my defiance. And I don't think he understood how much that wounded me, how, how powerless I felt, and how much shame I felt. This happening in front of my friends, mm-hmm. 17. Yeah. You know, like I carried that shame and and that I carried that shame and that sense of powerlessness for a long, long time. And I tried to bury it, but it always bubbled to the surface. Mm-hmm. And when it did, and I, when that memory came, which happened quite often, I would, I, my coping mechanism was very much like yours, right? Going into fantasy. I would, I would reimagine the situation where I, where I, like gained power yeah. like the minute he left me in my room I would you know in my imagination I saw myself running out to the phone and calling CPS I don't even know if CPS existed in those days right in the 80s you know um, or you know he had to drag me through the kitchen um, to my bedroom because it was on the other side and so I would imagine myself like breaking free and grabbing a knife out of the knife block and backing yeah. him up and saying, 
you're never going to touch me like that again. You know, like something, somehow trying to have the sense of control, yeah. the sense of power, to the sense of somehow getting rid of the shame. And because like my, one of the biggest habits for me, coping mechanisms to make, to help me feel powerful was, was masturbation and pornography. That was big. And so a lot of times that, that replaying that in my imagination led to those things. Yeah. And even when some of those coping mechanisms were, God had, was dealing with those, the root issue was still there. Yeah. That, that I still had this pain and I was trying to cope with it on my own. What does that say, Kim? about what I, how I viewed God. He wasn't safe for you to go to because if you really believed him that he was good and that he is best for you, yeah, then you run to him. But, you know, like all of us, you had that area where it's what I believe helped my unbelief, you know, where, you know, we, we say it, we have head knowledge that God's good, but sometimes our experiences lie to us. And say that he's not really trustworthy. You can't really trust him with that. That's going to be the one thing where he's not who he says he is. Or he can't do what he will say that he will do. <laughs> not like you're the first person to do that. It won't be the last. I mean, humanity's literally been doing that since the garden. Yeah. Yeah, right. That's where it, came, it comes down to, right? Is God was, had done everything for Adam and Eve. They knew nothing. Uh, they were not complete. Yeah. And yet God, in every moment, covered them in the fullness of his completeness, his perfection. Yeah. And so they never sensed anything. They were naked before God, and, and they had that poverty of spirit that they knew that they needed him. And yeah. that... And that they were going to him for everything. And so they were just con completely overwhelmed in every moment by God's perfect presence yeah. covering them. They were naked and they didn't sense it. And nor any would, I believe no one would have seen them like Moses. Yeah. And after seeing God's glory on Mount Sinai comes down radiating light. I really believe that that was true of Adam and Eve in every moment that they... No one would have seen their, their skin because they were so completely connected to God, so completely clothed in God's glory that they were just, I believe they were just like shining lights, you know, um, just bathed in his glory, reflecting, receiving it and reflecting it. So it was the moment, though, that this creature comes in and tells them that God's withholding from them. And if you think about it, this creature who they don't know is throwing shade on God, saying God is withholding something from them that they should have. This tree, this fruit on this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and logically, looking back at that, you would go, okay, they don't know this creature at all. They've never, they've never encountered it probably before, and yet... They assume it's telling the truth about God, even though they've been, that God has done nothing, nothing up to that point <coughs> to deserve that. 
Yeah. Uh, they've literally never experienced anything but his goodness. And in that moment, they make an assumption that he's telling the truth, and that's pride. They choose the enemy's lies over God's truth, and that is pride right there, putting themselves above God, that they have to be the ones in control, you know, because God isn't good. That's pride. And, and we are their children. So we're walking around with all these assumptions all the time now that God isn't good. And it was shocking to me that, I, I mean, this is how deep-rooted our assumptions are. This is how deep-rooted in our subconscious that we go right to our own thoughts and don't invite God in, don't discuss things with him like they didn't. They didn't go back to God and say, hey, this is what this creature said. That's, uh, is that true, God? Like, we need to, we need to have a talk, <laughs> right? Job did that. And God revealed himself in such a way to Job that he, he, was, he came undone. But he took it to God, and then God blessed him for it. Yeah. He took the discussion to God. That's how Job ends, right? He, he's just, the whole book, he's saying, I just want to have a conversation with God about this. I just, want, I just want to have a conversation. And when that conversation happens, his mind is blown. He sees things he never saw before, and he realizes just how finite he is and how much, how much bigger God is. And, and he's, he's put back to, in his place, and not in a bad way, but in a, in a realistic way, to see reality for what it is. Yeah. That God really is in control. He, he, you know, like, do you remember some of the questions God asks Job? Oh, geez, no, it's been... Job has never been on my favorites list. <laughs> Something about all that suffering didn't really yeah. make my little nine heart go, gee, I want to go sit in that for a while. Oh, isn't that the way it is with us? <laughs> suffering makes us run, right? We don't yeah. want to face it, and we miss out on the Easter eggs that are hidden in it when we don't face it and invite God into that. And that's really the whole point. And that's, like, we get... When we run from God, we run into fantasy every time. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what it is, what we're dreaming of, or what we're hoping for. When we're not having a dialogue with God, it's fantasy. When we're holding on to this thing that we think is going to, to change everything in our lives, if we just have this one thing or one person or whatever, that's all fantasy. Because nothing is a cure-all. Yeah. Nothing, except for our relationship with God, living it in that moment and finding his presence there and seeing things from his point of view because he's the one who upholds reality. And when we come to him, he shows us the reality, even beyond the, the brokenness that we're dealing with, that there's a greater reality, that God's reality is greater than the suffering we're facing. And, and it is true, whether we believe it or not. And that's what Job, in the midst of this great suffering that he went through, found. God's like, where were you when I put boundaries on where the ocean could move across the sand? Where were you when I measured out the world? And Job was like, well, of course I wasn't there. And he realized once again who God was and who he was and the proper place that he was in in that relationship. And rather than, rather than bringing shame to Job, it freed him. It freed him to see God for who he was and that he could be trusted 
and that he would carry Job. And, it, and because of that trust in that moment and him coming to God, right? Yeah. Because he came to God in the midst of that and had a discussion with God and wanted that, God showed him the reality, and from that moment, it reflected in his life. Do you, do you remember how things ended up after all the suffering that Job went through? How did things end up for him? He wound up with more than what he lost, just about ten times more than what he lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how often does God do that with us? Really? <laughs> you know? I mean, he takes those broken pieces things that we think are shattered beyond repair and what he winds up replacing it with is something that doesn't just affect us but then affects the people around us which is always his goal always always his goal because if we receive from him then we reflect it to other people and that's what happened to me in that wound carried it here's the embarrassing part for me the only thing that's embarrassing now to share the, about this story to me is that I held on to it for 30 years. And I can tell you, I didn't even know that I wasn't letting God in. This is how deep-rooted that running was and my distrust of God when it came to this father wound. That it was so deep-rooted that I didn't even know that I wasn't letting God in. That I, 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 I prided myself on having a lot of faith. <laughs> And yet the thing that mattered the most to me in my life, being healed from that wound, if you'd asked me, like, what would you give to be healed of that wound, it would, it pretty, would have, pretty much would have been anything, you yeah. know? And yet the thing that I wanted so badly to be free from that, I was not taking to God, and I didn't even know it. This is how self-deceived I was. It was such a deep-rooted pattern of behavior to run from God and go into fantasy land that I didn't even realize I was doing it. It just became a habit. And I wouldn't even know. Like, if you had asked me, like, why are the re- why are you living in your head in these areas? Why do you turn to pornography and, and masturbation? I would have not, I would have not, um, even been able to quantify it as th- there's deep, things that are that I'm I feel powerless over and shame over that I haven't given over to God I would have never been able to even quantify it but God knew and I finally got to a point where I was invited to go on you know uh, my first silent retreat Mm -hmm. and I'd wanted one for a long time and that's what it took it it took six days of silence this is how deep-rooted this was. It took six days of silence. Well, three days of <laughs> silence for me to, to be still enough before God and be open enough before God for him to highlight this area, this wound. And it caught, it caught me by surprise that I was like, what? <laughs> oh, I need to deal with this? I'm, I haven't dealt with it? And when he, he pointed it out, he said, you know, basically... In the silence of this retreat, I was, I, I just heard him say, "This is something you're holding on to, and you need to let it go to me." And it, like I said, it caught me by surprise. This is how, this is how, how much this was a habit, 
it was like I'd been holding this thing, you know, in my own power, trying to be in control of the healing process for so long, for like three decades, that my hands were frozen to the wheel. And even when God highlighted it to me, I, I couldn't let go. Yeah. For 24 hours, or well, less than 24 hours. Uh, until the next morning, when I, every day uh, on these silent retreats, you get, you do, you, they're not complete silence. You, you get a little window, you get a spiritual director who listens to your experience for the last 24 hours and gives you some suggestions. And my spiritual director, I, I brought it to him and told him, like, this is what God has highlighted to me, but I, can, I can't seem to let it go. I can't seem to surrender it to God. I want to, in my head I want to, but my heart won't let go. Because yeah. it's just been my pattern for so long. I don't even know what to do. And he listened to that and just gave me some great wisdom. He gave me a suggestion. He said, why don't you go read John chapter 20, where Jesus is interacting with Thomas, who doesn't believe he's risen from the dead. So I did, um, right at, pretty much after our um, our spiritual direction meeting was lunch so i'm not doing it during lunch no lunch is important lunch is important healing from the wound come on lunch well you know and so it was it was afternoon i probably took a nap after that and hey i'm a big believer in this and i heard this a long time ago and i really believe it sometimes the greatest thing you can do the most spiritual thing you can do... Eat food and take a nap? Is rest. Yeah. Is sleep. Yeah. To recharge, you know? So it was probably late afternoon, and I was sitting with God, and I opened up John 20, and here's the story of the disciples telling Thomas that Jesus has risen from the dead. And Thomas's statement, do you remember what his statement is? I won't believe unless I... See the wound on his side and the nails in his ri- nails scars through his wrist, and I put my hand. In. Why he thought that was a good idea to put his hand in? Yeah. Just ugh. the visual part of my brain is not appreciating <laughs> that, but you know. Did you ever think about why is it so important? Why was it so important for Jesus to carry those scars? I mean, he literally came back to life, right? He could have had a perfect body. Without those scars. So why did he rise up into a new body, a resurrected body that he will have for all of eternity that still had those wounds in his hands and the, and the wound in his side that, that Thomas could see? Why was that necessary? For our sake. The Bible's pretty clear. We have a high priest who can sympathize with us, mm. who has been there with us. And sometimes we're just... Like Thomas, we need that visual reminder that, yes, he's God. He's fully God. He's fully man. But he's he took our place. He took our wounds. Mm. And we need to be able to go, okay, yeah, I'm wounded. My wounds don't look the same as what you dealt with. But it's a reminder that he knows. He's experienced. Because there's something about someone who hasn't experienced a wound that we've experience that can put distance Mm. that can make it feel like well you don't really understand because you've never experienced that pain you know i mean (laughs) ask anyone who's adopted who's tried to explain their story to someone who's never experienced it there is there is that tendency to feel distance Mm. 
because if you haven't experienced it, then it's hard to understand exactly the pain that person's gone through. Just like, you know, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, you know, same with your disease. You've said that often enough, you know, about how God's worked through it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a connecting point for us to go, oh, this is the God who understands. He is the only God, (laughs) you know, who went through pain for the very ones who ran away from him. Everyone else said, all the other gods, like, clean up. Clean yourself up and maybe I'll accept you. Yeah, or I'll throw some lightning bolts at you. Yeah, or I'll throw some lightning bolts at you. Yeah. But his scars are the sign of the God who got down with us. Yeah, he did. He got down right with us. You're so right, Kim. He, He came down into our world and did the thing that none of us could do. I love Hebrews 12. It says... For the joy, what have we been talking about? Hmm. The Easter egg hunt, right? Right. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned, or some translations say mocked, its shame. This is what's amazing to me, is that Jesus did what everyone else was afraid to do. He faced his shame and the sense of powerlessness and he walked into it, and it was nothing to him. Like, where everyone ran, he went to the cross. The, what did the cross symbolize, really? It wasn't just this horrible physical punishment. It was the punishment reserved for the worst of the worst. Talk about shame. For Jesus to be on that cross naked, completely naked with his arms stretched out, Completely vulnerable, completely powerless, and completely in shame from everyone else's point of view because the cross was, that was set aside for the worst of the worst. And so on the side of the road, being crucified was like you, you were identified by, by the government, like literally by the government highlighted as the scum of the earth that shouldn't be allowed to live another moment. Stripped naked, completely in shame, completely powerless, and everyone walking by was mocking. Can any of us even imagine joyfully walking into that experience? We run from any hint of shame. Isn't that what I was doing? The shame of that wound, the feelings of shame, the feelings of powerlessness, and yet for Jesus, that experience was a badge of honor. Those, those scars on his, in his hands and on his side were his badge of honor that he conquered every shame, every sense of powerlessness. Because he not only died, he rose from the dead and proved that that stuff wasn't the end. He walked not in it and stayed there. He walked through it and rose above it. And so when I read John 20 and I saw Jesus inviting Thomas, he appears. You know, Thomas says, I won't believe unless I put my fingers there and my hands in the side, right? And Jesus appears a week later and says, does he like chastise him? Does he yell at Thomas? Does he call Thomas names? No, he puts out and offers. He just puts out his wounds and says, here you go. Whatever you need, enter into my wounds, touch them, feel them, believe, 
stop the disbelief and believe. Do whatever it's going to take. And in that moment, Kim, like, I had this picture in my mind of, of Jesus. And he was standing there with outstretched hands saying, Kurt, come on, enter my wounds. Come into my wounds and let me into yours. You're safe. I get it. So drop the walls and let me in. And it was so powerful of a moment, you would think that would have done it. <laughs> it wasn't just head now. Like this was like obviously connecting to my heart and I was just like just blown away by by his vulnerability and by the very that vulnerability that conquered shame and, and death and powerlessness there on the cross. And yet I still like my heart was moving. But it was still some stuck places that I couldn't surrender still. It was still my, I was still holding on to that wound. And, but like Job, you know, I could be at this point, and like Thomas, I could at least get to the point where I could be honest to him. Because up to this point, I was honest to my spiritual director. But you notice, I was honest to people, but I had yet to tell Jesus that I couldn't let go. And this is the moment where I just confessed it to him. I said, I, I can't seem, I want to let go to you. I do, but I just can't seem to do it. And he had, there, and like Thomas, there was no chastisement. I was safe in his, in his presence. And he just, he didn't yell at me, call me stupid or anything like that. What he did was ask me a question. What usually moves your heart when you feel stuck? And I said, music. I said, there you go. And so I went on my phone, my iPhone, and there's no Wi-Fi at this place. Yeah. So I've, I've got only the songs in my playlist on my, you know, on my phone. And so I'm scrolling through to see what I've got. And I come across an album that my wife bought for my kids by this artist, Lacey Sturm, who used mm. to be the, the singer in Fly, Flyleaf. And this was her, I think, her first or second solo album. And... I immediately stopped because I had been reading a book of her life. And it was just, it's a powerful story of, of her life. And so I immediately stopped because I'd never listened to this album. I'm like, okay, the book is powerful. This album's probably powerful, right? Yeah. And I was reading it on silent retreat because I had it on my phone again. I didn't have Wi-Fi. So yeah. when I didn't have anything else to do, I was reading this book on her life and I just finished it. So I'm going through and I am going through the songs and the last song on the album catches my attention, Run to You. Mm. And so I start listening to the song and oh my gosh, basically Lacey Sturm is writing, is singing a song like she's Jesus, she's God, and she's singing to the listener from his perspective. And the lyrics kind of go basically, I'm going to butcher them, but they're like, you know, basically the, the person in that that God is singing to through Lacey Sturm has has is not trusting him, mm -hmm. thinking he doesn't have what's best for them, and is like and is basically criticizing God. And the lyrics to the, the chorus say basically if you if you want to go, you can leave. You can go. If that's what you want. But call my name and I will run to you. And that just broke me. It broke me. I just heard the invitation, Kurt, you have never called out to me from this place of pain. You have hidden it. Just call out. And I did. In that moment, I just said, Jesus, I need you to take this one. I can't let it go. And I need you to take it. 
I, I need you to take it. In that moment, here's what's crazy, and I'm still realizing, what did I use to hide from him for so long? Yeah, my imagination, right? Yeah. Same thing as you, right? <laughs> and so many people in their imagination, they can picture that thing they desire that they don't have. And that's all the you know they and that's all they they focus on and so in our imagination without realizing it we run from God, and in that moment in my imagination God turned the tables in a good way and used my imagination as to heal me. It became it became something rather than the thing that I used to run from God. God in that moment when I called out to Jesus he used it to heal me because in my mind it was like a movie the minute I called out to him I saw the whole scene my dad pulling me by my hair I'm bent over you know and he's pulling me by the hair through the yard and it's like I'm sitting in a seat watching this like I'm seeing myself and my father like as clear as as I'm seeing you in my mind but I'm seeing something I've never seen before in all those times that I replayed it over and over in my mind, trying to take back power. This time Jesus is there. He is bent over as much as I am. And he is whispering in my ear. And he's saying, Kurt, I love you. I'm with you. I'm with you. And that this will not destroy you. And here's the crazy part. I'm watching all this. And I'm hearing these words like it's a movie. And he's also there next to my dad, whispering in my father's ear, Pete, I love you. I'm with you. And I know that you're angry and he has disappointed you. This will not destroy your relationship with your son. Through that experience and, and God using my, the, the, the very same imagination that I used to run from him to heal me of the wound, it lifted immediately, lifted off of me. And to this day, I can share that story. It's like, I don't even think about it anymore. I used to think about it, try to suppress it and think about it all the time and it would send me into a spiral, right? Now I don't even think about it unless I'm sharing it. And there's no sense of shame. There's no sense of powerlessness. It's gone. Because Jesus, who conquered powerlessness and shame and death, by his wounds, I've been healed. And this is what it's all, really what it comes down to, Kim, for all of us. Our, when it comes down to we're not gaining any satisfaction or contentment, where's our focus? Uh, are we pursuing things to gain satisfaction and contentment? Are we so zeroed in on the things of life to, to gain satisfaction and contentment? Or are we looking to God and trusting him to give us what we need? And the things we pursue is, is because we have some deep-rooted shame, some deep-rooted sense of powerlessness, and we feel like God isn't going to, he's, he's allowed those things to happen and he's not going to deal with them. And so we have to take control of our happiness, our satisfaction, our contentment, and our healing. It's all the same. We put ourselves above God and try to take control. And it never works because anything we're going to do is fantasy. Mm. It's not the reality. It's only when we invite God in to, with us to face 
our desires and our fears, our hopes and dreams, and our shame and hurt. It's only when we invite him in and and call out to him and and ask him to help us, because we don't even confess that we don't know how to do this, how to live this life. It's only when we are willing to do that in each moment, to the degree we are willing to do that in each moment, that we find contentment and satisfaction, that we find healing. What do you think of that? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, I agree. It's definitely, it's one of those things. Uh, of course, as you were speaking, my brain's going, okay, there's things I'm going to have to deal with. Um, there was a man who was like a second father to me mm. who just passed away. Uh, his funeral was actually this Monday, but it was the week before. And as you well know, I'm not a big fan of pain, <laughs> you know. And I've literally, I realized, I was like, I have not had a day to myself in over two weeks. In long, I already hadn't had time to myself before that happened. And I've been wrestling with the idea of there's a party for a friend tomorrow. Mm. I'm like, God, part of me is like, I know I need a day without people and a day to be with you. But I also don't want to disappoint this other person and not show up. Mm. Of course, you know, that little people-pleasing aspect of me goes... But, but, but they're new friends. You don't want to disappoint them. But I'm, I'm coming like, he's like, but which do you need more? Do you need me more or do you need to not disappoint them more? Right. I'm like, oh, ouch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, again, there's been a lot of that going on lately. Of I'm going, which, which do you really need? Yeah. You know, having to talk to a friend about things that I, you know, I was scared of. You know, not knowing how that friend was going to respond and having God say the same thing, well, which, which, which is really important to you. Because the funny thing about it, it can get so easy to go like, well, our relationship is okay. You know, there's enough. It's content. It's not hard at the current moment. I realized I'm like, I've been friends with a particular person for 18 years. I don't think we'd ever really had much in the way of conflict or confrontation, mostly because I just pretended none of it happened. Right. Or I grouched to everyone other than that person when I was frustrated and then shoved it down and didn't deal with it, you know? And God's like, well, do you trust me? Do you trust that I'm good enough that even if this does end, which, eh, (laughs) talk about your, you know, every single bit of conflict is a nine's worst nightmare. It will end my world somehow. (laughs) that's what my brain goes to. It's like, your world's going to (laughs) end, you know? And he's like, but was I with you when Elevate, when the church ended? Was I with you when you were let go from the other church? Was I with you all that? Did you survive all of that? And was I with you in that? I'm like, yes. That slightly reluctant voice that means, well, do you trust me in this too then? That even if this ends your friendship for some reason, am I still good? Am I still enough for you? That you can do this for the right reason. Because he's like, this is more of a heart issue. He's mm-hmm. like, yes, your friend hurt you. He's like, but I'm more concerned about what's going on in him. And do you love him enough to make yourself vulnerable to the idea that you could lose the friendship in order to say what I want you to say? You know, and it wasn't easy. <laughs> and I certainly spent a lot of time freaking out about it because, you know, that's just me. <laughs> Hey, I spent 30 years running from that, so... Yeah. 
and in the end it, it it worked it was it was funny how god was i, I told your daughter cuz i was ta texting her and i was like god showed up like his presence was there in the middle of it you know and i still don't know what the results are which drives that little controlling part of my brain absolutely nuts but i'm learning more and more that when we know who god is we know who we are it's like it's in John 13, you know, Jesus, it says that he knew what God had given him to do. He knew where he came from and he knew where he was going. And because, every translation except for ESV for some reason, says because he knew those things, then he washed, got down and washed the disciples' feet and served them and was able to, you know, impact their lives and then tell them to go do the same. You know, and that's really... <laughs> That's really where it comes from because, you know, we spend a lot of time with the control thing trying to look the right way or do things the right way. You know, as someone who has a one wing as well, I'm learning more and more how much that's really playing in a part of mm. how I won't do things if I don't think I can do it right. Mm. And God's like, I'm not asking you to do it right. And I'm using air quotes on the right. <laughs> He's like, I'm not asking you to do it right. I'm simply asking you to be with me, to come down where I am and simply be my kid and enjoy what I am doing in your life, what I am doing in the lives of those around you. Because when you know what I've given you, when you know where you came from, which is me, and you know where you're going, which is also me. <laughs> he is the past and he is the future. Yeah. He is who was and who, who is, is and, and who, who is, is to come. come. Hmm. Interesting. When you know that, then there's no shame in getting down and being at people's feet and doing the things that actually change the world. We tend to think of changing the world as being this high up position, but Jesus changed the world as disciples' feet. Yeah. And in places of shame and in places of hurt and brokenness. He stripped off of his all his outer clothes and got <laughs> down to to be the servant that you know, that was the one who had to wash the feet was the lowest place and and yeah. the role the lowest role in the house. And he got down and did that, stripped off his clothes, his outer clothes, and got down and washed their feet. Because like you said, he knew who he who God was and he knew who he was to his father. Yeah. And so there was freedom in that. Yeah. And that's what it takes. That is really what it takes. You wanna change the world, know who God is. And knowing who God is, learn who you are. There's the reason it was the YWAM motto, at least Youth with a Mission motto, when I was there, was to know God and to make him known. Hmm. What was that thing uh, you sent me today? Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. Uh, Henry Nowen. I love his writings. And it, I mean, it goes to, you know, one, one of the, the scriptures I have in my journal every day to remind me to clothe myself in God and all of who he is, is Colossians 3. It starts off with, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's, that's our identity right there. We're, we are chosen by God. That is our identity. We've been picked by him. Mm -hmm. And we are holy and beloved. Put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, 
humility, meekness, and patience. Meekness is the word self-control, right? Yeah. When is it enough? When what I have is enough? That's what self-control really is. It's not just saying no to the bad things. It's about saying that's enough of the work, and now let me enjoy the things God has given me. That's enough of enjoyment. Now let's get to work. It's no like Ecclesiastes, right? Yeah. Says there's a time for everything, right? Yeah. And knowing when it's time for something and when it's not time for another is all meekness and self-control, and that is who God is. And only, how are we ever going to know these things? Mm-hmm. Do we really know? Like we always want way more of either work, you know, for self-esteem reasons or pleasure to get, you know, to not feel the pain. So we need God. Like, we, we are never going, to, our, our desire to control things never is going to be a good thing. Okay. I'm just laughing because it makes me think of when I sent you the poem the other week and then when we met last week, I was like, I don't know if it's finished. You're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. I was like, because my brain's still going, but we could do this and we could do this and I could change this and I don't know if I'm happy about this. You know, I think it's it can be one of the hardest things as a writer or a mm. poet or an artist, you know, yeah. to go, when is it done? When is enough enough? When does what I'm doing stop being creating? And when does it start destroying the very thing that I, that was meant to be a masterpiece? Only when we do what Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15 says, as acknowledging that we are God's chosen ones and that we are holy and beloved, And then we invite him to clothe us in all of who he is, just like he did with Adam and Eve, including self-control and wisdom, right? And the list goes on is patience, bearing with one another, right? And forgiving one another. So forbearance, forgiveness, Mm -hmm. and love that binds everything together in perfect harmony. So if I think of these as clothes, love is the belt. So, you know, our, the rest of them don't drop around our ankles and we get exposed, right? Yep. And let the peace of Christ, the word shalom, is peace, but it's more than that. That word is being translated as a word of completeness. So harmony, right? So we, which, you know, God's love binds everything together in perfect harmony, everyone together in perfect mm-hmm. harmony. And that peace is also that completeness, that we're in harmony and completeness with God and each other. And let that rule in your hearts. You notice the word let is not a passive word. No. It's an allowing. Allow God. Invite him, his completeness, to clothe you and to rule you. So that you, that's as you were called to be one body, this is where completeness, this is how where we find unity. Everyone is like, our country is so divided right now. Mm. How do we define unity here? And each of us taking responsibility for letting go of control and inviting God to rule in our hearts and all of his completeness. And being thankful is a huge part of that. It's a, st- it's a moment-by-moment thing. And it may seem exhausting. You know, uh, Paul says, Apostle Paul says in his letter to, this is a letter to the Colossians, to the ancient church in the city of Colossus. Thessalonians was, 1 Thessalonians was written to the people of Thessalonica. It says one of the things he commands them, here's the will of God, to pray continually. 
Be joyful always. Give thanks in all, you know, pray continually. Give joy, uh, be joyful always and pray in all circumstances. Be thankful. Did I say thankful? I just butchered that. Eh. Okay, so the three things are be joyful, pray continually, and give thanks. And the way to have joy is to continually give God thanks in prayer and to give him all of the things that we are struggling with that we don't have joy over. I've heard someone, I heard someone say a long time ago, pray continually? That sounds exhausting. You know what's more exhausting? Actually, that's freedom. What's really exhausting is carrying all this stuff myself. Praying continually is what I did that day when Jesus showed me I was carrying the wound for 30 years and nothing was happening. For 30 years I was running on a hamster wheel going nowhere, right, in my fantasy life. Praying continually and being aware, it's just being aware of God's presence and continually inviting him in to the areas where we realize we're not letting him in and surrendering all the, our burdens to him because we know that he is who he is and we know who we are. He's the lover and we're the beloved. That's freedom. That's not a burden. The more I pray continually and surrender to him and be aware of his presence, the more I'm clothed in his peace and his completeness, and his harmony, and his love, and his patience, and his self-control. The self-control that tells me, helps me know when it is the right time to do what. When enough is enough. This is what it is. And that's what identity comes to, knowing him and surrendering ourselves to him because we know who he is and we know who we are. That's freedom. That's not a burden. Hey, why don't you pray for us, Kim? And maybe if there's some stuff that, you know, pray for everyone listening. And maybe if there's some stuff that you just mentioned that you need to surrender, maybe this is a good time to do that. And ask God to lead you in that processing of facing things, even, you know, about tomorrow. Dad, thank you. You are so good. You are always with us. There's no time where we have not been seen or heard by you. What a gift it is that the God of the universe cares about the big things in our lives, but also cares about the small things. To ask, ask for the people listening that you will show more and more of who you are to them. And in that, show them more of who they are. What a delight it is to get to know you better. What a journey. Thank you that it's one that we never have to be perfect in, that we never have to say we're an expert in but that we always get to be in that comfortable place or sometimes uncomfortable place of being your students. Mm. Dad, there's a freedom there to know that we don't have to have it all together. You've promised that you are the one who provides wisdom for us. Most of all, you provide yourself. Dad, just with, with all the choices coming up, with all the things that are just a part of life, help us to keep our eyes folks fixed on you because you are the author and the perfecter of our faith. And you are good. You are good at being God. And you are good to us. Let those truths be what we rest on. Dad, you would give everyone who's listening your rest this week. They would take the time needed, whether it's in the morning or in the afternoon, to simply be with you. Dad, there's nothing that delights a father's heart more than to simply be with his kids mm-hmm. with no agenda. Thank you that... You are not distant and far off. Yes, you are the God of the universe, and you are our Lord and King. But you are also our Father, our friend, 
and our brother. I ask you would help us to learn that you are both and in these situations and not either or. Sometimes that's a tension that's hard to live with. But even in the middle of tension, Dad, you you are good and you are worth pursuing. Thank you that you pursued us first so that it's even possible for us to pursue you. And Dad, I just ask for everyone that you would give us rest this weekend. As we come into this weekend, Dad, I know that though I don't know the answers yet, you do. And you know the right choices. Maybe right's not even the right word, but the best choice. Just ask you would help us to choose you first. That we would experience your joy over us. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Kim. If you're listening to all this and you have questions about what we're talking about and you want to talk to us, we would love to talk with you. So you can get a hold of us through Facebook. Just look up Life Hurts God Heals. Or you can find us through our email address, which is lifehurtsgodheals2020 at gmail.com. And until next time, be loved because you are his beloved.